Hello everyone, we are on Mustal FM 89.6. I'm Thomas and I'm with Samantha. How are you, Samantha? Thank you. I'm very fine. Today I have watched a very interesting documentary about Ted Bundy. I don't know, but impressed me so much. And Thomas, have you ever watched serial killer documentaries? Yes, of course. I love it. A few days ago, I've seen something about Ed Kemper. Do you know him? Yeah, I have heard some facts about him, but truly, I don't know a lot, unfortunately. Okay, don't worry. There is no problem about it. I have many things to say about him. But first, let's define what is a serial killer. A serial killer is a criminal who commits homicides and repeats them over time. The most common definition of a serial killer is one who has committed at least three murders with a time span of days to years between each crimes. The four main types of serial killer based by the type of crimes they commit are as follows. Thrill seekers, mission-oriented, visionary killers, and power control seekers. Visionary killer believes that the person or entity is commanding him to kill, most likely suffering from psychosis. The mission-oriented killer kills in order to rid the society of certain group. Hedonistic killer commits acts for his own personal pleasure, for example, rapes, torture, or money. The power control killer fantasizes about having power and seeks to dominate his control of his victims. Wow, I didn't know this classification at all, but what type was Ed Kemper? Okay, I'm glad you asked because I have a lot to say about Ed Kemper. Edmund Emil Kemper was born in Burbank in California on December 18, 1948. He was the middle child and only son born to Clarnay Elizabeth Kemper and Edmund Emil Kemper Jr. Edmund Jr. was a World War II veteran who, after the war, tested nuclear weapons at the Pacific Proving Grounds before returning to California when he worked as an electrician. Their marriage was disastrous and they separated in 1957, her father accusing her mother of alcoholism before officially divorcing her in 1961. His mother, suffering from psychological problems, hit her companions and divorced three times. Kemper suffered from this throughout his youth. His older sister, Susan, used to hit him. Their house in Montana wasn't not very big, and his mother, who hated him, ordered him to go to sleep in the basement because, according to her, he didn't deserve to sleep in a room. He takes pleasure in torturing and de decapitating the neighborhood pets, including his cats, which buries alive. Kemper's mother then sends him to live with his paternal grandparents, which makes him feel abandoned. During his high school years, he did not stand out. But on August 27, 1964, when Edmund was 15 years old, his grandmother was sitting at the kitchen table when she argued with her grandson. Irritated by the argument, Ed grabbed the gun that had been given to him for hunting, went back into the kitchen to shoot his grandmother, who was abusing him three times, one bullet in the head, two in the back, and stabbed her several times. A few minutes later, his grandfather arrived and Kemper shot him in the back of the head. Panicked by what he just has done and not knowing what to do, he called his mother, advised him to call the police, which he did. Arrested few moments later, he told the police that he just wanted to know what it felt like to kill his grandmother. 
He later claimed that he had killed his grandfather out of pity so that he wouldn't learn about his wife's murder. He was then placed in the California Youth Authority. The California Youth Authority is a center that provides education, training, and treatment service to California more serious youth offenders. A co-appointed psychiatrist diagnosed Edmund as a paranoid schizophrenic. On December 6, 1964, the judge had him committed to the Atascadero State Hospital where he had morbid discussion with rap- rapists and murderers. They tell him that he shouldn't leave the victim alive after abusing her because it makes her potential witness. They also taught him how to answer to the psychiatrist question correctly so that he had better chance to leave the center. In 1969, he was released from the psychiatric institution when he was 21, in which he had been placed for five years. Against the advice of the psychiatrist, recommended that he go and live with his father, he finally had to move with his mother, because they couldn't fight his father. His mother wanted him to have a normal college education, but Kemper prefers to go to bar, hoping one day to make a career in the police. After several jobs, he finally gets a job in the California Highway Division, which allows him to leave his mother and gradually reintegrate. Ed then attended a community college and hoped to become a police officer, but he was rejected because of his height, two meters and six. Despite this, he maintains a friendly relationship with the police officer who frequent the same bar as him. In the same year of 1969, he had serious accident on his Harley-Davidson while he was drunk, left him destitute and without resources, so he had to return to live with his mother. Three years later, in 1972, went to live with a friend of his in Alameda. However, he often had financial difficulties which led him to return to his mother's house. That same year, he started dating a 16-year-old student to whom he would later become engaged. With the money from his accident, he bought a car, a Ford Galaxy. When he drives it, he realized that many young women are itching. He then started to store in this car plastic bags, knives, blankets, and handcuffs. At first, Kemper picked up female hitchhikers and let them go. However, when he offered the ride to two Fresno State students, Mary Ann Pesci and Anita Lucesa, they would never make it to their destination, unfortunately. Their family reports them missing soon thereafter, but nothing would be known of their fate until August 15, when a female head was discovered in the hood near Santa Cruz and was later identified as Pesk. Lucesa remains, however, were never found. Kemper would explain later that he stabbed and strangled Pesce before stabbing Lucesa as well. After the murders, he brought the bodies back to his apartment and removed their heads and hands. Kemper also reportedly engaged sexual activity with their corpse. Later that year, on September 14, 1972, Kemper picked a five-year-old Eikoku who had decided to hitchkick Razor than wait for the bus to take her to a long dance class. She would meet the same fate as Pichy and Lucesa. In January 1973, Kemper continued to act on his murderous impulse picking up Ichiking Cindy Shaw, whom he shot and killed. While his mother was out, Kemper went to her home and hid Shaw's body in his room. 
He dismembered her corpse there the following day and threw the parts into the ocean. Several parts were later discovered when they bashed on shore. He buried her head in his mother's backyard. On February 5, 1973, Kemper used the campus parking sticker his mother had given him to facilitate a double murders. He drove to the university where he offered the right to two students, Rosalind Torps and Alice Liu. Shortly after picking them up, he shot the two young women then drove past the campus security at the gates with the two mortally wounded women in his car. After the murders, Kemper decapitated his two victims and dismembered the bodies, removed the bullet from their head and disposed of their parts in different locations. In March, some of Torps and Liu remains were discovered by hikers near Highway 1 in San Mateo County. At the same time, Kemper's murder, two other serial killers, John Linley Fraser and Herbert Mullins, were also perpetuating their own crimes in the area, resulting in Santa Cruz receiving the ignominious nickname of Murder Capital of the World in the press. For Kemper's part, he was dubbed the co-ed killer and the co-ed butcher. In April 1973, Kemper committed what would be his last two murders. On Good Friday, he went to his mother's home when the two had an unpleasant exchange. Kemper attacked his mother after she went to sleep, first striking her in the head with a hammer and then cutting her throat with a knife. As he had with his other victim, he then decapitated her and cut off her hands, but also removed her larynx and put it down in the garbage disposal. After hiding his mother's body parts, Kemper caught his mother's friend Sally Harlett and invited her to the house. Kemper strangled Harlett shortly after she arrived and hid his body in the closet. Kemper fled the area the next day, driving east until he reached Pueblo, Colorado, where on April 23 he made a call to the Santa Cruz police to confess his crimes. At first, they did not believe that the guy they knew as Big Head was a killer. But during subsequent interrogation, he would lead them to all the evidence they needed to prove that he was in fact the famous co-head killer. Charged with eight counts of first-degree murder, Kemper went on the trail for his crime in October 1973. He was found guilty of all the charges in early November. When asked by the judge what he thought his punishment should be, Kemper said he should be tortured to death. He instead received eight concurrent life sentences. At present, Kemper is serving his time at California Medical Facility in Vacaville. In summarizing, we can highlight several important factors of the biography of this serial killer. A difficult and cruel childhood, the victim were mostly students, he had 145 IQ and committed murder during the 90s. It's very interesting stories and surprisingly another famous serial killer named Ted Bundy had exactly the same features. I would like to tell a little bit more about this serial killer because his story is also very, very interesting. Ted Bundy, in full Theodore Robert Bundy, was an American serial killer who kidnapped, raped and murdered numerous young women and girls during the 1970s and possibly earlier. After more than a decade of Daniels, he confessed to 30 murders he committed in seven states between 1974 and 1978. 
Bandy's true victim total is unknown and is likely significantly higher. Ted Bundy was born Theodore Robert Cowell on November 24, 1946 to Eleanor Louise Cowell at the Elizabeth Lund home for unwed mothers in Burlington, Vermont. His father identified has never been confirmed. By some accounts, his birth certificate assigns paternity to a salesman and United States Air Force veteran named Lord Marshall. Through according to others, the father is listed as unknown. Louis stated she had been seduced by a war veteran named Jack Worthington, who abandoned her soon after she became pregnant with Ted. Some family members expressed suspicions that Bundy might have been fathered by the Louis' own father, Samuel Cowell, but no material evidence has ever been cited to support this. For the first three years of his life, Bundy lived in the Philadelphia home on his maternal grandparents, Samuel and Eleanor Cowell, who raised him as their son to avoid the social stigma that accompanied being born outside of wedlock. Family, friends, and even young Ted himself were told that his grandparents were his parents and that his own mother was his older sister. Bundy eventually discovered the truth, although his recollection of the circumstances varied. He told a girlfriend that a cousin showed him a copy of his birth certificate after calling him a bastard. Bundy occasionally exhibited disturbing behavior there at an early age. Louise's younger sister, Julia, recalled awaking from a nap to find herself, can you imagine, surrounded by knives from the kitchen? and three years old Ted was stayed in by the bed and smiling. But, unfortunately, nobody paid attention to it. And as I think, it was a mistake. In 1951, Louis married Johnny Bundy. While Ted took the, his name, he reportedly didn't have much respect to his stepfather, who he resented for being too uneducated and working class. Louis was working as a secretary in the University of Puget Sound and still married to Johnny in the 1970s when Ted was accused of his crimes. She refused to believe the charges for years, although she changed her stains after they confessed. Bundy had a difficult childhood. He had a stained relationship with his stepfather and his shyness made him a frequent target of bullying. However, later, his intelligence and social skills enabled him to enjoy a successful college career and he developed a series of apparently normal emotional relationships with women. After graduating from high school in 1965, Bundy attended the University of Paget Sounds, UPC, for one year before transferring to the University of Washington to study Chinese. In 1967, he became romantically involved with a UW classmate named Diane Edwards, who in body biographies is referred to, to almost exclusively by pseudonyms, the most notable of which is Stefania Brooks. In early 1968, Bundy dropped out of the college and worked a series of minimum wage jobs. He also volunteered at the Seattle office of Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign and became Arthur Fletcher's driver and bodyguard during the Fletcher's campaign. Brooks ended their relationships and returned to her family home in California, frustrated by what she described as Bundy's immaturity and lack of ambition. 
devastated by the breakup. Bundy traveled to Colorado, visiting relatives in Arkansas and Philadelphia and enrolling for one semester at Temple University. It was also at this time in early 1969, Rule believed that Bundy visited the office of Bertha Courts in Burlington and confirmed his true parentage. There's the version that these two factors to understand that his real mother was his sister and the breakup with his ex-girlfriend could affect him very much. And also there's the fact that many of Bundy's later victims resemble his college girlfriend, attractive students with long dark hair. By the mid of 1970s, Bundy has transformed himself, becoming more outwardly confident and active in social and political matters. He even got a letter of recommendation from the Republic Governor of Washington after working on his campaign. Bundy was back in Washington by the fall of 1969 when he met Elizabeth Klopfer, sometimes identified Bundy literature as MacAndrews, Beth Archer or Liz Kendall, a single mother who worked as a secretary at the UW School of Medicine. Their stormy relationships would continue well past initial incarceration in Utah in 1976. Bundy became a father figure to her daughter Molly, who was three years old when he started dating her mother. He remained in her life until she was aged 10 after he had been arrested. As an adult, Molly wrote of incidents in which Bundy was sexually inappropriate with her, including incident exposure and sexual touch disguised as games. There is no consensus on when and where Bundy began killing women. He told different stories to different people and refused to divulge the specifics of his earliest crime, even as he confessed in graphic detail to dozens of later murders in the days preceding his execution. He told that he attempted his first kidnapping in 1969 in Ocean City, New Jersey, but didn't kill anyone until sometime in 1971 in Seattle. He told psychologist Art Norman that he killed two women in Atlantic City while visiting family in Philadelphia in 1969. He sexually assaulted and killed several young women in Washington, Oregon, Colorado, Utah, and Florida between 1974 and 1978. Although he would ultimately confess to 28 murders, some estimated that he was responsible for hundreds of deaths. In the fall of 1974, Bundy moved to Utah to attend law school, and women began disappearing there as well. The following year, he was pulled over the, by the police. Then the police found a crowbar, a face mask, rope, and handcuffs in his car. He was arrested for possession of these tools, and the police began to link him to much more crimes. In 1975, Bundy was arrested in the kidnapping of Carol de Ronge, one of the few women to escape his clutches. He was convicted and received a 1-2-15-year jail sentence. Nevertheless, Bundy escaped from the prison twice in 1977. The first time, he was indicated on murder charges for the death of a young Colorado woman and decided to act as his own lawyer in the case. 
During a trip to the courthouse library, he jumped out a window and made his first escape. He was captured eight days later. In December, Buddy escaped from custody again. He climbed out of the hole he made in the ceiling of his cell, having dropped more than 30 pounds to fit through the small opening. Authorities didn't discover that Bundy was missing for 15 hours, giving the serial killer a big head start on the police. After Bundy's second escape from prison, he eventually made his way to Florida. On the night of January 14, 1978, Bundy broke into the Chi Omega sorority house at Florida State University. He attacked four of the young female residents, killing two of them. On February 9, Bundy kidnapped and murdered a 12-year-old girl named Kimberly Leach. These crimes marked the end of his murderous rampage, as he was soon pulled over the police that February. Bundy was executed in Florida's electric chair in 1989. The most damning evidence connecting Bundy to the two Chi Omega murders at Philadelphia State University were bite marks on one of the bodies which were differently matched to Bundy. Despite the appealing nature of his crimes, Bundy became something of celebrity, particularly following his escape from custody in Colorado in 1977. Bundy was regarded as charismatic and considered to be handsome, traits that he exploited to win the trust of both his victims and society as a whole. He would typically approach his victims in public places, either feigning a physical impairment such as injury of impersonating an authority figure before blundering them into unconsciousness and taking them to secondary location to be raped and strangled. Bundy often revisited his victims grooming and performing sexual acts with the corpses until decomposition and destruction by wild animals made any further interactions impossible. He decapitated at least 12 victims and kept their severed heads as mementos in his apartment. During his trial, his charm and intelligence drew significant public attention. His case inspired a series of popular novels and films devoted to serial murder. It is known that popular media has transformed Bundy into a romantic figure. The story of this serial killer is beyond belief, so many factors could affect him. A birth as a result of possible incest, the absence of a father in the life, a difficult childhood, a breakup with first love, and so on, it is really unclear whether we will ever know the full truth. As you can see, the topic of serial killers is very interesting and very actual in modern life. The relevance of this topic is justified by several important factors. First, a more detailed study of the lives of serial killers also provides insight into the main characteristic of their behavior and the motives for their crimes. What crime sense they choose, how they behave when they meet the victim, what characteristics in the victim attract, and so on. Analyzing and collecting information about serial killers is very important. By understanding the main characteristics of maniacs, potential victims can be more careful and avoid contact with the serial killers. Secondly, 
It is necessary to understand the main factors that influence the formation of traumatized thighs. Most serial killers had a traumatic childhood, violence, rape, bullying, abuse by parents and other relatives, and many other terrible factors. Studying the lives of serial killers makes it clear what is best avoided in raising children and how they can be helped to prevent deviant behavior in children and future horrific crimes. Taken why this topic is so actual for me, I can say that this is related to my previous education. I finished the law faculty and we have studied cases for crimes of famous Russian maniacs and serial killers like Chikatila, Chaika and other. Since childhood, I heard on the news how these criminals killed more and more victims in Moscow parks, but they couldn't be found. It was not clear to me how the armed police couldn't find just one criminal for many years. And it was in the Faculty of Law that we began to study the psychology of the crime, and it turned out to be really very interesting to understand the motives and all the factors that influence the formation of this deviant behavior. Thomas, why is the topic of serial killers interesting to you? Honestly, I'm very fascinated by serial killers because I just can't understand why people like us, human, can do this kind of thing to another human. For me, it's extremely interesting to try to know what there, there is in their mind, how and why they behave like that, what happens in their whole life to become like that. Because we all born pure and innocent baby and I don't understand how people can be that bad. What happened in their life? I think this is really, really interesting. I totally agree with you because I think also that special objections affect on the babies, on the children, and all these factors can affect this deviant behavior. And this is why it's so important to understand and to get known these interesting things, why they behave like it. I want to say some statistics and facts about serial killer in general. For example, did you know that women represent between only 5 and 10% of these serial killers? I could imagine it because I know that most famous serial killers are men, but I was thinking that the percent will be higher, not only 5 or 10 percent. Also, one of the characteristics of serial killers, they act mostly alone. It's logical because in most cases they prepare a lot of things for the murders. But yeah, in any case, sometimes I believe that they need some help. But it's like very interesting that they don't gain this help and doing all things by their own. Uh, 90% of the serial killer have pathogenic family. That can explain that some people just maybe don't want to do it, but it's because they have mental issues or, or disease and that's why they do it. It has been found that a high proportion of serial killers were sexually abused, physically or emotionally abused as children. But other parameters influence this. However, not all children who are beaten or abused become serial killer, and we are really happy about it. A serial killer is often a psychopath who is characterized by his lack of empathy and sadism, by his strong desire to kill, by the pleasure he gets from his act, and by a very strong feeling of superiority. It's incredible, you know, all the stories, how they prepared all these crimes, how they wanted to feel when they are killing people. 
I can't understand it by myself, but it's very interesting that it is their desire to kill is so high. I totally agree with you. But as you can see, we presented only two stories of serial killers, but there are a lot of interesting cases of serial killers in different countries. And this is why we want to continue these stories and to show you interesting facts about their lives, in their biography, etc. So, as you can see, it will be continued. Thank you to be with us. Thank you, Samantha, for doing this podcast with me. That was really nice. Thank you, Thomas. See you. Bye-bye.